0: Our final speaker today is Reverend Dr. Matsumoto and what he's changed his title too is <laughs> the Holy Father of Jacques Derrida through the lens of other power in Shin Buddhism and vice versa. Thank you very much. Uh, what time do we, okay, uh, I'll try to keep this uh, a certain limit, I wanted to uh, first of all uh, express my appreciation to, uh, to Dr. Tain and Gibbs for organizing uh, this symposium and for allowing me to uh, have an opportunity to, uh, to add some of my thoughts. Uh, I want to begin, as have uh, some of our esteemed Buddhist participants, with uh, a series of Kadya. Uh One is that I am also a rank amateur when it comes to um, philosophy or religious philosophy, uh, although much more so uh, much more an amateur than Irving Gibbs or Dr. Vermont claims to be. And perhaps, uh, I'm not sure why we always begin with caveats, I think because uh, we believe that Shin Buddhism is the religion of the humble people, Uh, perhaps uh, sometimes the false people, I'm not really sure. But I'll begin with with that statement. However, um, I I do uh, stand here with a certain amount of uh, Fear and trembling, as I sent for uh, first, uh, especially uh Professor Fankman, who is a, uh, an authority of Levinas and knows a lot more about Debbie As you mentioned, Debbie was a student of uh than I ever will. But I wanted to add a few of my thoughts or give you some, uh, um, share with you some of my own personal explor- uh, explorations uh, concerning uh, John Debbie um Not as an expert, but someone who has come upon him and has been fascinated uh, by not only his thoughts, but his uh, deep uh, religious sense. Uh, the, the aspect of Derrida that really fascinates me is, is um, uh, some of the work that he did later in his life. Of course, um, as I'll talk about in just a little while, uh, since about the late 60s on, Derrida was really, really sexy in North America. You know, the whole idea of uh, post-structuralism and deconstruction is something that a lot of people just uh, gravitated to because of its sort of radical nature. Uh, and uh, indeed, um, my initial uh, interest in Derida came from that sort of perspective or attitude. But what really resonates with me is this sense of the, the later Derida. Derida certainly in his later years, but uh, perhaps uh, um, uh, Derida in a return to his, um, um, maybe you call it his authentic self, uh, or his true engagement with, with uh, his religious self as well. Anyway, so um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about that today. I'll be skipping around and not necessarily following the outline I've given you. Uh, When someone asked me why I had chosen this topic early on, the holy other dark cities up to the end of other power and Jain Buddhism, uh, I replied somewhat flippantly, "Well, no one really understands and no one understands other power, (coughs) so it's it's kind of a good fit." (laughs) Uh, If someone were to ask me the same thing today, after months and months of sort of obsessing over this and really trying to them try uh, to figure all what all about. I would probably have the same answer, however I would be saying it with dead seriousness. <laughs> uh, anyway, let me just uh, give you a little bit, of sort of an, uh, an amateur's uh, view uh, perspective on deadness. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm not gonna talk a lot about some of his early writings, although they're very important, of course, very well known, uh, but I really want to spend more time talking about his later writings in particular when he talks about the Holy Other. However, um, many of you know about Jacques Derrida. He was born in 1930 in Algiers as a member of a Jewish family. Uh, at the time, he and other um, people of uh, Jewish religion were the victims of anti-Semitism uh, in a colonial regime during, uh, that was uh, um, suffering under Nazi or German occupation. Uh, he um, engaged in a number of different groups uh, intellectually, Uh, and um, when he later went to France, he was involved in a number of leftist intellectual movements. Uh, I said his academic career was somewhat um, spotty, somewhat troubled. Uh, He did some brilliant uh, scholastic work, uh, but he also um, suffered some early failures as well. Uh, He gained great renown uh, for his studies, uh, but he also had a reputation of of being somewhat unconventional and taking a somewhat experimental approach. Uh, he has a number um, had a number of different uh, influences, including Levinas, but also Plato, Nietzsche, Rousseau, uh, Husserl, Freud, and Heidegger, um, and, as well as um, I don't speak French, so I'm not, I'm not gonna even pretend to be able to speak French. Uh, but um, among uh, some of his other influences, the people uh, in uh, what we call the structuralist movement. Anyway, uh, today, uh, after uh, in his later career, David o. was both revered and he was denounced within France and internationally. Uh, but his uh, one of his great accomplishments, what we now know as what we call deconstruction, uh, has been adopted by and has certainly influenced a great many of disciplines, uh, not only uh, linguistic philosophy, but also mathematics, uh, psychology, architecture, literature, uh, religion, and there's even a Woody Allen movie entitled "Deconstructing Harry." <laughs> so uh, his influence is, is quite profound. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, idea of deconstruction, at least in North America, as it was and possibly, uh, adopted in popularly adopted, really began in 1966 when he gave a lecture at John Hopkins University uh, entitled "Structure, Science Play in the Discourse of Human Sciences." Um, it's it's a little complex, and I don't think we have enough time to talk about it, but basically what is his, his, the, the immediate uh, focus of his talk was on, on speech and writing. And his um, perspective was that, uh, or especially those of us in, in the, the Western tradition, that speech was preferred over writing. Speech was viewed as something that was much more immediate, that is, uh, much, more, much closer to the physical presence uh, of an indi- individual conveying ideas, whereas writing was viewed as somewhat uh, as a help and a hindrance. Some that was a, a copy of speech and didn't have the immediacy of speech. Anyway, that's sort of the uh, initial, um, uh, 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 one of the initial hopes of his, his, his concerns. Uh, what he developed in terms of his approach was right, uh, that he, he stated, among other things, uh, that Western talk, he said, was uh, based upon the concept of lobathism, this idea of logos, uh, the notion of uh, truth, uh, the original voice, or an absolute cause, uh, which uh, we call, we use various uh, words to describe this notion of logos. Uh, we use the words, the notion of the ideal, uh, divine will, cross-consciousness, that's the word we've been throwing around, even God, purity, or essence. Uh, and the notion was that this logos forms the center of our thought, uh, and that um, uh, at in as it does, it creates a number of different problems. Uh, and um, uh, chief among them is the problem of that lobus is based upon are uh, creation of a binary opposition, that is, uh, uh, pairs of opposites, such as speech in writing, or uh, purity in defilement, uh, male or female, uh, white or black. And as in these polarities, these, these binary opposites, one of them is chosen, one of them is selected as being central. Uh, for instance, speech or purity or white, uh, and that 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 whole uh, is selected as central and is given uh, priority. It's it's in a sense it's privileged. It's viewed as being uh, perhaps more authentic, more real. Whereas the other the other side of it is, is marginalized, uh, and um, um, that this, the other side is viewed as. As being, uh, being uh, defiled, left, left, left authentic, and so logocentrism is based upon this sort of um, um, fixing of binary opposition. And so Derrida, uh, his strategy was something called he called um, deconstruction, uh, which was a strategy in which he would bring uh, which brings attention to this hierarchy that's created. Uh, first of all, bringing attention to this term, the central term. Uh, purity, uh, speech, uh, male, uh, white, that type of thing, uh, as well as the, the fixed uh, hierarchy uh, that it rules over. And then uh, the strategy is then to, to deconstruct this hierarchy, to overturn the binary opposition, uh, and uh, to uh, lead to what he called a free play of opposites. Uh, all of this is, is very complex, in, in which we had more time to talk about this, uh, but maybe just to bring this back to um, uh, the context of language once again, we can get a better idea of what Krasi um, was trying to do at this early stage of, of uh, his writing. He said that language, which is, he includes your both speech and writing, uh, always involves uh, delay. It involves a deferral of meaning. There's a certain ambiguity or distance, a confusion that's inherent in language. Uh, For instance, when we think of words, uh, we think of a word like the word dog. When we think of the word dog, um, and when it's spoken or when it's written, it refers to uh, um, a certain uh, idea, a certain concept, a certain meaning. Um, And and we we have this idea, this 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 connection, that that the sign, which is dog, uh, tells us something about the meaning of the signifier. Uh, which is the meaning of dog. But then he uh, looks at this, he deconstructs uh, this um, uh, perspective uh, on language. He sees, first of all, that the word dog, the sound, dog, uh, it really it has no particular meaning in and of itself. And the only thing that uh, is significant about it is that it's not the same as hawk, or it's not the same as lock. it's not the same as deep, it's not the same as bag, it's not the same as dot. It's not the same as whatever dog. Uh, that there's the, the differences that occur in the sound, um, uh, that the sound itself is no significant other than in its difference from other sounds. But that same application applies to, uh, to the meaning itself. When we think, okay, I know there's this word dog, and I know it refers to something. But when we think of what that something might be, you know, we naturally assume, okay, there's this thing which we use, we use the word uh, dog to represent. But when you really get down to it, what is this thing? Okay, if you go to a dictionary and you look up the word dog, it might say mammal. It might say something that's not a cat. It might say something that's smaller than a horse. Uh, There might be all these different definitions, but that doesn't really get you anywhere because then you have to figure out what does horse mean? What is a cat? What is a mammal? And as you move in further and further, you realize that these words, these meanings that so-called um, give us an idea, of the, 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 uh, give us the essence of, uh, of what we call the dog, is nothing but a fleeting phantom. Uh, and that um, all we really are left with is just this series of, of differences. Okay. Uh, and so uh, in his strategy of deconstruction, uh, he really makes this... Come make us real uh, that what we take to be some essential meaning, some essential truth, is really nothing more than just a series of interrelation of, of differences. Uh, he, Teddy uh, is difficult. Okay, he's tough. He's tough, and believe me, um, uh, he, he's, he's tough for a number of different reasons. Uh, one of the reasons he's, he's, he's hard to understand, I think, is because uh, in his writing, his writing is really intended for us to sort of. Uh, to, to deconstruct our own uh, biases, our own preconceived notions uh, of words, uh, of, of uh, ideas like self and reality. But he also uses language in a very clever way. And I wish I understood French, I wish I understood any French, but his, his use of language is, is extremely clever. Uh, one of his uh, uh, words that he coined, perhaps the most well-known word, is the word, I hate to say, because we have Go for it, difference, difference, uh, okay. Oh, that. okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And you see it in the uh, in the outline. It's interesting because in his presentation of this motion, he he, he uses uh, he spells it or he mispell it. Okay. Uh, the first spelling of difference is the D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E. He spells it with a an A-N-C, deliberately. Uh, and what he intends to mean by this notion of Quran is that it has a couple of meanings. It means to differ. Uh, that a meaning of a word is really just a function of what of the series of, of differences. What, is, uh, what a meaning of a word is a function of, and what it is not, in other words. But it also means to defer. Okay, uh, that a, a word's meaning is never present. It's never present. There's no immediate presence uh, of a word's meaning. It's always delayed. It's always deferred. What does all of this mean? Okay, uh, it, it, means, it, it means a number of different things. And, and, and uh, I think what we want to get back to is the sense of as as Derrida um, looked at word, looked at language, uh, or later on he considered uh, other aspects uh, such as state policy, or race, uh, nation, culture, um, other types of aspects of, of human life. Uh, what he uh, was doing with this strategy of deconstruction was, first of all, identifying the, t- the kinds of uh, um, hierarchies that we create, uh, the type of uh, oppositions that we create, uh, and, and identifying the fact that, uh, again, that there is a sort of um, uh, oppression going on. Uh, there is something very violent going on uh, in this mode of thought. Okay? That if something is held out as true, it's because something else is false. Oh, if something else is... is sure is because the other is, is impure. Okay. And he sees this as not just a philosophical not just a sort of linguistic play, although he does use the word play of opposites or play of differences but it has very real and significant uh, impact in our life. Uh, he has a phrase um, this is an English translation uh, there's nothing outside of the text or perhaps a more a closer translation to the French, I'm not sure, is, there is no outside of the text. Uh, in, 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 which he talks about text. We think about text as a book, as words. We open up a, uh, book, whether it's either a, a paper book or an uh, electronic book, uh, and there's a series of words which we can read. But he says text. He goes beyond that. Text is, is life itself. He expands, uh, the, the whole, uh, the context. Text is context, uh, um, uh, the context in which we, uh, we live our lives. Okay. And he says text is not we we have to look at text is, is um, uh, has inherently in it this type of violence this type of ongoing suppression uh, of the other whether it's in a book or whether it's in uh, the, our, our, our politics whether it's in our society or in our thinking. Um, I want to. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to have a lot of time, but I want to jump ahead into um, his later work. Of course, uh, there are many, many important implications of, of Della's early work. Uh, he's very, very stunning sometimes in his approach, uh, or perhaps uh, in the opinion of particular incorrectly stunning. But I think that uh, there's uh, there's a great deal to be said of some of his later work. And here I want to talk about his notion of what's. Uh, uh, I'm using the, inter, you know, the English translation of the the Holy Other. Um, I, won't, I won't attempt the French. Um, this notion of the absolute Other, the that which is absolutely other than the self. Uh, and he takes up this theme uh, um, um, later in his life. Uh, he does so from a, a number of a couple of different perspectives. Um again, there's a text um, which is a very small text, but a very challenging text called The Gift of Death. Uh, and in this book, The Gift of Death, Derrida, uh, first of all, uh, takes up the issue of the other in terms of ethics. Okay? We've been talking about ethics. in terms of talking about in terms of our responsibility. But his unique approach to this, based upon his deconstruction, uh, his, uh, uh, his, uh, was that responsibility is really an impossibility. Okay? Real responsibility is, is an impossibility. He uses the uh, he. he uh, I, remember, I believe Professor Shankman talked about uh, Abraham, the story in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham was given a command by God to kill his son Isaac, okay. uh, and uh, David uses this story to begin to talk about this notion of the impossibility of being truly responsible. He says Abraham, he he received this command from God to kill his son. Uh, and he obeyed this command. Uh, he obeyed his command because he, he was responsible, uh, to God himself, to God only. But by doing so, uh, Abraham was acting in violation of sort of general ethical principles. he okay? should not kill. We should not kill our children. And not only that, he, he held this act in secret. He, he, brought Isaac up, uh, to, to, to kill him, uh, in secret. He wouldn't tell anyone. So his, what, what, what Nebula is saying is that this, there's this push-pull, there's this inherent tension that we have uh, between a responsibility to a single other, whether it's God or whether it's to a loved one, and a responsibility to um, um, uh, society or the world generally. Uh, we might look at this in, in uh, maybe um, uh, an example that applies to Everyday life. Uh, sometimes we find there's a conflict uh, in our responsibilities between uh, you know, being responsible to our families uh, or to society generally. Uh, sometimes uh, I don't know if you you know feel the same thing, but there are times when um, you know there's certain demands or requests being made uh, by your family uh, to be with them, not to always be away at work or to be away somewhere else. Uh, and so if you uh, If you want to exercise a responsibility uh, to accord with uh, the wishes of your family, oftentimes that will prevent you from being able to uh, to fulfill your other uh, worldly duties. And so um, uh, this notion of this, uh, there's there's an inherent paradox, a conflict between the uh, responsibility to uh, singular responsibility uh, and responsibility generally. So you talk about the impossibility of living a responsible or ethical life. But this notion of impossibility takes on another meaning. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to do. It doesn't mean it's something we shouldn't talk about. It doesn't mean that uh, it prevents us from striving to act in an ethical way. Uh, Dedede's notion of impossibility is phrased in a, in, a, in, a, in a whole different sense. And that's where he brings up this idea of the messianic holy mother. This is what I find so engaging with Dedida. Because as I mentioned before, he he grew up in a a Jewish family. I would imagine, I don't know that much about his life, but I would imagine that if he went off to France to pursue his academic uh, career, uh, that probably he he left uh, major um, uh, features of his religious background behind. But uh, through his life experiences, uh, later on in his life, uh, he returned, in a sense, to his Judaic background. And he returned, in particular, to a Messianic, Uh, um, aspect of his his Judaic background. And his his idea of the Messiah, the Savior who is to come, uh, calling to the Messiah to come, uh, has particular significance. Uh, For Debedah, for him, this call to the Messiah, uh, to the Holy Mother, to come, uh, is not expecting that the Messiah is going to come at any particular time or any particular place, or the Messiah is going to take any particular form. Uh, That's an aspect that might be found in other types of uh, Medellinic religions. But for Devidah, his call to the Messiah, the call to the Holy Other to come, is in a sense, um, his uh, opening up, his being completely open uh, to unexpected surprise, um, to to, to his being open to the coming of the Holy Other, the completely other, in a way that he cannot know, he cannot expect. He says, for instance, if I could anticipate If I had a horizon of anticipation, if I could see what is coming, or who is coming, there would be no coming. This idea of the coming of the Holy Other is being uh, um, an event of complete surprise. Uh, And all we can do is wait. We just wait. Even in the midst of activity, we just wait uh, with a ceaseless openness uh, to a future um, that perhaps uh, we cannot know. Uh, and this notion then of the coming of the Holy Other uh, is, plays a very significant role then in this notion of the impossible this is the impossible uh, it's impossible to know impossible to expect impossible to anticipate but this notion of impossibility is not a negative okay? uh, it, it, it becomes, it seems to me uh, it becomes an, open, an infinite openness uh, it it transforms itself into imagination, uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, an awakening of, of creativity uh, in his personal and his religious life. Um, I'm going to jump way, way ahead and just talk a little bit about other power. Uh, and um, I'll say, uh, sort of following some um, uh, of the comments that Professor Moon made, uh, these are my own thoughts of other power, uh, even though I'm uh, within the same tradition a uh, Shin minister. Um, my thoughts do not necessarily accord with uh, Shin orthodoxy, um, but I wanted just to share with you with some of my thoughts regarding other power in Shin Buddhism, because I think this is a topic uh, of, of great interest to all of us the Shin Buddhists. We're always wondering, what is self-power? What is other power? Uh, and it seems to me that um, our seeing perspective on other power forms uh, an important lens, a way in which we can somehow get a, uh, get a sense of what Derida is, is, is grappling with. So at the same time, I think Derida and the Holy Other also gives us perhaps a vehicle for getting, uh, maybe coming to grips a little bit more with the sense of other power. Uh, for me, other power um, is, um, uh, maybe just to give you in the conclusion, uh, it is, uh, it's a notion Developed in Pure Land Buddhism, uh, a working that uh, works to overcome uh, our substantialized notions of the self—that is, the self that remains uh, unchanged, that is not subject uh, to uh, uh, conditions uh, arising—and uh, so Hadiki, I think, is this its a wellspring; uh, it's an ongoing movement uh, of uh, this. this what we might call, the system, perhaps, the flow of religious life uh, that allows us to break through a uh, conceptualized notion of the self uh, Shinran says, other power, on one hand, the other power is none other than the power of the Tageta's Kinoba. vow okay, other power is none other than the power of the Tathagata's vow uh, in this um, passage, which uh, comes from the chapter on practice in his Kyogu Shinsho uh, Shinran then goes on To uh, offer an explanation, he cites Tan Wan, uh, the great Pure Land Buddhist master of China, who is said to have synthesized, integrated uh, the Madhyamika teachings with uh, with the the Yogacara teachings uh, in formulating a philosophical uh, foundation for Pure Land Buddhism. He he cites Tan Wan, who talks about this notion of uh, um, uh, Bodhisattva practices, that the Bodhisattva, particularly here the Bodhisattva-dharmapara, uh, acts in ways uh, to perfect the practices which brings about, he says, the two types, others benefiting, which he calls padi, other here being the capital, uh, capital O, and benefiting others, here others being the small case O, dita. Uh, and this notion of padi and dita, of others benefiting, benefiting others, uh, forms, uh, according to can uh sort of uh, the multi layer content of the activity of pariki. Now, for many of us, when we think about the concept of the notion of pariki, many things come to mind. Of course, we have the English translation other power, and not naturally, um, because uh, this is a word, we have a tendency, uh, we have, um, uh, we're very good at uh, believing that there is, this. maybe using the, uh, uh, the the vocabulary of yaksirya, a transcendent signify, that just because we can use this word, other power, somehow this potential thing exists, okay? Um, but So we think well, okay, other power must be, this Buddha out there um, sending down uh, all the influences, this Buddha out there as this absolute subject who is uh, acting in this compassionate way. I think Shinar, however, looks at this in much more, I think this, this corresponds in many ways to what Professor Bloom was saying in terms of on the perspective on apathy, he looks at other power and self-power from a very much of a human standpoint. Uh, because he says, other power means to be free of any form of calculation. Other power means to abandon the mind of self-power. Okay. So what does the mind of self-power mean for Shinra? Uh, in one of his texts he says this, uh, to abandon the mind of self-power is to abandon the conviction that one is good, to seek relying on the self, to stop reflecting knowingly on one's people's heart and further to abandon the judging of people as good and bad. Perhaps as Professor Bloom said in terms of happening, these are people who really don't get it, okay? We think we get it, we just don't get it. Because what we tend to do as people of self-power is we have this deep down uh, in our own psyche, our own way of doing things, this conviction that I am good, that I can rely upon myself as I, I reflect knowingly upon my heart, my own heart, thinking uh, maybe, maybe that I'm a good person, maybe that I'm an evil person, okay, but thinking that um, I'm able to make this judgment as to my own nature and as to the nature of other people. Uh, and that this is also judging people as good or bad. Okay, it's sense of uh, taking upon ourselves this ability to judge and determine what is good or bad, what is good or evil, uh, he says it's the mind of self-power. In other places he talks about self-power not in terms of self-effort. Sometimes you think self-power means the mind of self-effort it means to go out there to try our best. But he's something very different. It's the mind here, again, just having the conviction that one is good, knowingly reflecting upon it, ourselves. Or he says times he because it is the mind of calculation, the mind of self. Maybe looking at this in a broader sense, I think for Shinran, self-power includes it it, it refers to our own arrogance, our own personal uh, and our religious arrogance. Uh, Self-power is the mind of delusional thinking. Uh, It's the mind of our own ego-centered activity. Uh, That's self-power. And so, to abandon self-power is to realize other power. Now how easy is this? How difficult is that to do, to be able to abandon this mind of self-power? There are a number of, when we think about other power and self-power, I would say that probably for many of us, we have this sort of conception in mind, we have this sort of imagery in mind as to how the two relate to each other. Uh, If we look at it in sort of conventional sense, we think of self-power is to apply ourselves, to have a certain mindset, and to engage in religious practice. And then when we get to a certain point, that we realize that religious practice doesn't get us any further. It doesn't allow us to uh, proceed along the path of enlightenment, the and, and then we sort of give up, and we, we give up all uh, all uh, pretenses, uh, and we trust ourselves completely to other powers. So sort of this idea that there's self power where self power ends, and there's other power. Okay, so there's sort of a corollary to this, uh, and I'd like to talk a little bit more with Professor Bloom, because I know he's an expert in Kierkegaard's almighty. But it seems to me in some of my I mean, a superficial reading of Kyozawa, that Kiyosawa takes the sort of, he accepts this kind of corollary, is that um, <coughs> what, what, is, what perhaps needs to be done, or we do, maybe, uh, is that we engage in activities, there's maybe ethical, moral activities, we engage in, in, in religious practice in order to attain birth, or to uh, come to some, some sort of realization, but uh, it's of no avail. And we come to a point, we come to a point of utter exhaustion, Okay. When we realize that everything is failing, and, and then at this point of utter exhaustion, we're able to discard this mind of self-power, and we trust ourselves to other power. So there are a number of schemes, a number of images, images that I think we have of this relationship, as it were, between self and other power. But I would submit that for Shingon, uh, other power is not simply uh, the power of another. It's also, uh, it's not only others benefiting, but it is benefiting. Other, which is to say uh, that other power, okay, um, um, there's we often hear this phrase absolute other power, in this sense, other power is absolute, it includes within itself um, self-power. So other power, I would say, just in, in trusting ourselves to other power, uh, is not um, inconsistent; with it. it's not uh, exclusive of uh, self-power that the two uh, are, in a sense, uh, different aspects uh, of uh, of a religious experience. Um, Another way of perhaps saying this is that our entrusting in other power is our, on the one hand, it is uh, using the terminology, the Buddha's benefiting us, but at the same time it is our becoming the other that is benefiting, benefiting, and our, our realization of ourselves as that other uh, which is uh, Röntgenberg that makes the enlightened uh, by, by the Buddha so it is, it is both the Buddhas as other but it is our, ourselves becoming other okay. looking at this in another sense perhaps it is also uh, realizing self not just as the individual but the self as other, the self as others uh, realizing an intimate con- connection and relationship uh, with all other beings and so to become uh, to, to, to realize other power then to, to, in a sense from our perspective is to become the other in a religious sense it's to, become, it's to be empty of all of our convictions that we are good uh, all of our uh, ideas that we can make judgments as to right or wrong uh, all of our arrogance and calculations it's to, be, it's to be empty of that but at the same time uh, it, is, um, it is then to become an other in a broader sense to realize our, our, our uh, if you want to say, oneness of all beings, to realize uh, our self as other, okay, and, our, and our other uh, as self. And I think this, this realization of other is this sense of infinite interrelatedness, infinite interconnectedness. Now, what does this mean, and why, why do I bring this up in terms of a discussion of debida? Uh, well, I think there are many reasons for this. Uh, perhaps. Uh, the sense of self as other and other itself that we come across in our, in our encounter with other power in free Buddhism uh, might uh, be of some uh, assistance, of some use in our discussion as we return to Gedida and what he sees as the impossibility of our responsibility both to a singular other and to others generally. Perhaps it's, it's enough to solve this ethical conundrum uh, that he, um, uh, he comes, of, comes across. Uh, at the same time, I think, however, uh, is, uh waiting for the holy other, waiting for the uh, the Messiah, the holy other that is um, um and, and it is an, is an important way I think of forming our, our own perspective on salvation in Shin Buddhism. Because if we think about things in a purely sort of simplistic or literal sense, um, our idea of, of salvation involves. Uh, awakening to uh, encountering, uh, 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 entrusting in the Buddha's vow, uh, awakening uh, this mind of pure faith uh, while we are alive and then having the absolute assurance that we were born in the sure land uh, after we die. There is a sort of linear sense of <coughs> flow to that, that type of thinking uh, of, of salvation. But what if, if we are to learn from this, uh, this notion of of uh, his waiting for uh, his calling to the Messiah, his calling to the Holy Other, uh, which will never come. Or maybe it will. We don't know. Maybe it will in a way that we just have no way of knowing. Maybe this will help us help to inform our own understanding and appreciation of salvation in Shin Buddhism. Perhaps salvation is an ongoing process, a process of transformation, a process of transcendence, which is never-ending and ongoing a uh, way in which we be constantly become the other, constantly uh, um, find our life open up to an infinite and unknowable otherness. Uh, I think perhaps uh, in this way uh, we are able to become completely emptied uh, of all of our substantialized notions of our self, of good, of our ability, and we can trust ourselves to an unknown future, along long-for-oneness within the minds of Debbie will never come. Uh, I just wanted to conclude by, by relating to you, if I might, just a short anecdote uh, that comes to come to mind uh, constantly to me when I read Debbie Dye his later work. Some uh, many, many years ago, back in 1995, uh, when I first came to IBS, we hosted a symposium. Um, and a number of different uh, theologians came um, from Harvard and elsewhere uh, Dennis Yeroka Tachimukawa, uh, uh, Nukashi Tashkawa, uh, Daniel Kota came as well uh, and there, there was a tremendous gathering of discussion uh, of uh, for the establishing of a, of a contemporary Hinduist theology um, well, what I remember most about that is we invited uh, a great Buddhist scholar by the name of Mastoshi uh, Nagatomi, and if you remember Nagatomi, he's <laughs> a great scholar of Indian Buddhism at Harvard University, he came uh, to be a respondent. Uh, and uh, as part of our uh, activities uh, during the weekend, uh, we had a service at the Old Ideas on Addison Street. Uh, and there um, we set up a small nighting, uh in our own way, and as the uh, hondo, the central object of we had a statue of Amita Buddha that we, we received from the Bakersfield uh, Buddhist Temple. Uh, and I remember we had a service there, um, and we said, okay, after the service we're going to break up and everyone's going to come down we're going to have a reception. Um, but as I was trying to close things up, I realized that one person remained uh, in the hondo, our makeshift And That was not a Buddhist Uh He stood before. Uh, the altar uh, stood before the statue of Amita. Uh and there were tears in his tears running down his cheeks. I didn't know about Komisinsky as well as other people, but from what I was told, uh, in his academic career, he was a really tough guy, extremely critical, extremely tough. Uh, he didn't um, he didn't uh, um, um, uh, give you any kind of he felt that you weren't. Uh, living on to the that the, the standards. you were complying with the standards of uh, 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 true academia uh, and at the same time uh, he was also a product of the joshin family his father, I think his family, was a temple family, joshin uh, family in Japan for many years his father was a very famous kind uh, in the BCA uh, but as perhaps um, maybe it was a, uh, uh, a reflection of the time uh, when Professor Nagatomi uh, um, pursued his academic Career. In many ways, from what I heard, he became exceptionally critical of Joe teaching. Uh, perhaps it's because it was believed, certainly uh, one of the sort of prevailing beliefs, is that uh, an academic has to be approached to live in a very objective, sort of scientific kind of way. And if you let your own personal faith, your own personal uh, allegiances get in the way, that you can't uh, possibly um, uh, do your job in, in the correct way. I'm not sure what the motivation was, but I recall he was extremely critical uh, of, of Joe's teaching and looking upon it as sort of, something like a folk religion. A folk religion. But not am going to say later in the life, he, um, um, of course, he pursued his, his academic degree he did so with a tremendous amount of, uh, of confidence and brilliance. Um, uh, but as I recall, he also, um, um, from years before, a couple years before his death, he had an auto accident he was a victim of an auto accident in Korea, I believe He was dying uh, his wife was hanging in the balance uh, and um, I'm not sure what through his mind at the time but it was a couple years after that that he came to the Ivy Symposium uh, and it was that moment that I found standing before the statue of the Buddha, uh, Nina Buddha uh, looking at him with tears rolling down uh, his cheeks and I can only imagine that for him that moment, as I kind of look back upon perhaps the experiences of his life and uh, the, uh, the experience that he was encountering uh, with uh, uh, the statue of Amida Buddha. But so for him, the sense of, of, of waiting, of waiting for uh, uh, this holy other uh, was fully embodied in my okay. life. And, and just feeling his presence, feeling I mean, his he, he tears, and, and just getting a sense of his deep reverence, uh, his faith, uh, and love that he had uh, for the Uh I had the real sense that for him, it wasn't that he is, his academic career had come to a point, and that he can now face face to face, face. Okay, from now on, I'm, I'm going to live a religious life. It wasn't that he came to a point of that his academic career came up to a wall, that he was no longer able to. Uh, that, that he felt that the limitations of his academic life. That's not what I felt. What I felt now looking at it in retrospect, that he has come to this notion, this, this point of being of absolute openness, this absolute openness to this holy other, this complete other of Buddha, of other power, of what it is, perhaps, he didn't even know, what it is he could not say, and when it would become, uh, when it would come to him, he had no idea, for for him, it was this, this openness uh, was transformative, was, was carrying him and supporting him in, in, in a way that was um, this, uh, maybe known only uh, only to the heart and the mind of Nagatomi Sense. So while I, I think of Derida, his return to uh, the Methodic Judaism of his youth. I think of Nagatomi Sensei as sense, returning to uh, the Shin Buddhism of his youth. I also realized that in many ways, that is for us, uh, this Thomas, this openness uh, of the coming of the Holy Other. That, uh, when it might come, we don't know. How and where, we have no idea. Uh, but uh, it is become then for us, I think. And I think Debbie does deconstruction to come. It enters into uh, the world of faith, uh, the world of ethics, uh, the world of uh, the ocean uh, of thought. Thank you very much. Um, and um, I appreciate you very much.